0: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost. Each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, clinicians, CEOs and founders in the health technology space, the people that are driving the health tech revolution forward in the UK and beyond. I am a CEO and founder, as regular listeners will know, of a health tech company myself called PocDoc. We are revolutionising the diagnostic space delivering a step change increase in access by allowing anyone with a smartphone to test themselves uh, for major diseases, starting with cardiovascular disease. We're currently rolling out across the NHS uh, and through a partnership with Novartis, as well as across pharmacies all over the UK. So all very exciting times for PocDoc. PocDoc are a big supporter of putting the show on. So thank you to them. Um, Also, thank you as always to everybody listening. So we're up at 60,000 people listening live to the show right now going out across uk health radio so thanks a lot to johan and his amazing team at uk health radio we've got well over a thousand subscribers to the youtube channel and we've got thousands of people listening live across the the podcast platforms and we are now officially a five-star rated podcast on spotify so thank you very much everybody for listening so on to today's show i think it will come as no surprise to everybody that we're in a little bit of a tough spot as far as the economy goes I'm, i'm sure that's not news to anybody listening there's a lot of negativity out there. There's a lot of financial pressures and things like that. And there's plenty of companies uh, in all verticals, not just health technology, but but we're a health tech show, so um, that are looking for capital, that are struggling for capital, um, all all the while actually demand for health services, healthcare is obviously on the up. So on today's show, I think we've got a really interesting guest who's got a really interesting angle on the general macro trends that are going on in this space. And so we've got Christoph Rudig, who is the partner, a partner at Albion VC, who are one of the leading venture capital firms in the UK uh, that focuses specifically on early stage health technology, digital health companies uh, like PocDoc, but we are not in the portfolio. But one of the people in that is in the portfolio who's been on the, the health tech hour more than once is Locum's Nest, who are absolutely crushing it as far as NHS staffing is concerned. And they're actually speaking to Ahmed Um, If you go back and you look either on Spotify or on YouTube, get the Ahmed Sharabani shows with Locum's Nest. They're absolutely fantastic and so topical because literally the week that that show came out, they announced a policy change that Ahmed had been talking about the week before saying that this is what they should do. So go check it out. Anyway, Christoph, welcome to the show. How are you?
1: I'm all right. Thanks for having me, Steve. And uh, well done on your fantastic show.
0: Thank you very much. So... um, as you know, you know, the, the show, we kind of me- meander around a little bit. We have only ever had you're the the second ever uh, VC venture capitalist investor that we've had on the show. I think that it's an underserved category in terms of trying to explain generally about why you guys play such a critical role. Obviously, particularly, I would say, in health technology, given that there are much longer journeys between sort of inception. It's a, there's a heavily regulated space as it should be and so on and so forth um and so i'm actually really happy to get you on talk about a whole bunch of different things but let's start with just for everyone listening because we are a broad church you know there's lots of different people that listen to the show how would you define venture capital and why do you think it exists
1: good question does it
0: exist
1: i haven't been asked that question in a long time because it's such (laughs) a it's such a big industry now when i entered you know, 15 years ago, into the venture capital industry. Um, I mean, I, I guess I, you know, I, I would define venture capital as uh, really as uh, as a as a as a form of financing. It's so a part of the capital markets, the wider capital markets. And if you go back to sort of, I guess, microeconomics, right? There's two things you need. Uh, there is uh, there's financial resources and sort of human resources, right? So people and money. Uh, and venture capital forms part of the money um uh, piece of uh, of the of the jigsaw uh, and venture capital really is one of the earliest um uh, stages of sort of capital so you know venture capital comes in to finance businesses when there there's already something there it's not typically not a complete startup just people with an idea there's typically a product there um you know depending depending on what stage the venture capital fund operates in um, you know, it may be sort of uh, earlier or later, but there's already something there, sort of a group of people and a bit of a product or something. And and that's really where I think venture capital plays plays a really, really critical role. Because in, in those situations, there's a lot of risk that you're taking as a capital provider. Um, because the majority of, you know, of, of investments of companies actually do ultimately fail. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Because, you know, and that's just, that's just, It's just how nature, you know, works, you know, know, how humans, how our systems work, uh, because the world is so complex, you know, that you mentioned regulation earlier, there's also regulation in particular in health tech. Uh, And so these venture capital funds take a lot of risk and therefore, you know, demand a, you know, a a good return. Um, And uh, but because of that risk, actually, a lot of the. The rest of the capital markets, so the you know the big money that you hear about in the news you know, for, for example Bank of England you know yeah. they'll talk about bonds and these sort of things they would never touch this because they're looking for you know a, a guaranteed return almost right and and venture capital is, is almost the opposite. they are yes they're looking for a guaranteed return but not on every individual investment. in fact a, a good venture capitalist they go into an investment basically saying well it's likely that I'm going to lose all my money on this. But there will be one or two or maybe three in my vintage and my portfolio that will be successful and they'll be wildly successful. And so I'll make, you know, 10, 20, 30 times my money. And that's how you then deliver the returns across the fund and therefore can then continue to operate and raise funds yourself.
0: Right. And is there an issue whereby... You know because the the fund exists or the funds exist that you've got money from other institutions or wealthy individuals or however it, you know how or, or successive previous funds that roll on. Are you are you this is a question I've always kind of been interested in is like and I think that it's quite pertinent for today's market, which is there's no obligation necessarily on you guys to put money out into companies or there is sometimes so you could, could you could in theory hold on to it, which I think is One of the things that's being thrown around at the moment is like, is it better to hold on to it or is it better to invest it in companies, even though the economic situation might not necessarily be ideal and the companies may not necessarily be in as good a financial situation as you might want in a different kind of market?
1: Yeah, so uh, let me answer this in two parts. I can explain a little bit how it works for the average sort of venture fund in terms of capital deployment and what the sort of cycles are um and then secondly you know whether actually it's a good time to invest now or not so on the, on the first piece um the the the, the so the average venture funds uh, uh venture fund the way it works is that you raise money from larger financial institutions and they may be pension funds they may be endowments they may be you know banks they may be strategics pharma companies um yeah. insurance companies um and, and the way it works is that you basically secure what's called commitments. Okay. So the the you don't ha- you don't get money onto a balance sheet. It's just a commitment from those institutions to fund you the moment you've found an investment and right. are basically calling down the capital. Okay. Right. And that typically um, you know, is so that and that that's all wrapped up in a in a fund structure, which is typically a sort of a limited partnership. So I won't yeah. go into the details there. Um and and typically the investment period is a five year uh time period. So you can call, you can make new investments and call the capital from those institutions for a five year period. And then there's another five year period where it's sort of maturing, and then you exit the companies, and sometimes you add another two years, so it's a 12 year period. So between right. 10 to 12 years is a life. Okay. So that's that's how it sort of works. And um a lot of funds are actually fundraised when the times were still good. So they're sitting on a lot of dry powder. And that dry powder is a commitment okay, from the these institutions that have committed to deploy that capital. And, and they're legally bound to, de- to deploy it. Right? So if they, okay. if they if they were to pull out, that would be very, very painful for them. So the funds yeah. that have capital, that have raised capital or have raised those commitments, they're in a pretty good spot. And this is coming on to the second uh, part now, which is... Um, now valuations are actually quite low. No. Yeah. So now is 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 actually a really bizarrely a very good time to be making investments. Certainly in the later stages, and we can come on to you know the the difference between what's happening in the early stage funding market and the later stage funding market later. But at the moment, on a broad on a general level, prices are pretty attractive, and companies are still looking for financing, uh, and so actually you know for the ones that have a lot of cash or commitments, it's actually a very, very good time.
0: Well, yeah, I think it's super interesting. And I think that I've always felt that particularly just in the general wider ecosystem or, or the general kind of wider population, there's a bit of a lack of understanding around how critical funding capital is to companies that start. You know, there's a lot of talk I find, particularly from politicians around innovation and fostering innovation and, you know, we're going to be a com- a country of, of of innovators and startups and all this sort of stuff and it's like yeah no it's all great like I'm sure there's like tons of people with ideas and, like tons of people want to have a crack but as you say it's like people and capital and if you can't continue to provide large volumes of capital into the system then you it doesn't matter I mean you know the classic example is like Tesla right they were eight days away from or seven days away from implosion not because they didn't have a good product but because he just couldn't get the capital together which he evidently did obviously but you know i think i don't know what your thoughts are about that no no
1: absolutely this is i mean this is something i've learned over you know over a number of years if not sort of decade in venture capital that the key risk uh these early stage companies have uh even sort of later stage companies is actually financing risk yeah because as you say you know you may have a perfectly good product um but you know maybe you know, your last 12 months has been so sort of slightly tough and you haven't grown as much as you, you before and the dynamics aren't quite right. And if you then can't go and raise capital, you know, you may end up, you know, not surviving because, you know, your your, your investors, you know, aren't willing to continue to support you. And, yeah. and you know, early stage companies um, are generally loss making. I mean, especially if you're, you know, talking about technology companies and especially those which, which have what's called sort of deep technology. So where there's a lot of sort of investment required in well, to get heavy, the market. Right? R&D have exactly. So, you know, those are loss making until they typically reach several tens of millions, you know, sometimes sort of hundreds of millions, right. So, you know, they do require a lot of capital. And so therefore having, you know, one, a a functioning uh, capital markets ecosystem um, is is absolutely critical. But two, also to your point, having the right sort of regulatory environment, you know, the sort of government, you know, being supportive of that is is absolutely critical.
0: Yeah, because you can't just have the government saying that they want innovation and then you know, well, we're going to come. I don't know if you saw what happened, what was announced with the R and D tax credit scheme. I don't know if you saw. This. I did, we'll no, no, I did. To we can come onto that later because I want to talk about that. That's definitely um, causing a stir, I would say in the kind of R&D intensive, but we can come on to that because I'm not sure necessarily R&D tax credits is like something that the general person on the street maybe listening to the show knows about, but it's absolutely critical. I tell you what, every single early stage health tech business knows what R&D tax credits are.
2: Absolutely. Um,
0: so um, what? just just on a personal level, what was your journey like into venture capital? Like how did it come about? What, why, you know, what what, what was the motivation?
1: yeah sure um so I mean I originally actually trained as a medical doctor, so oh, cool. you, know, I I know my, you know i did my i did my sort of six years as a medical student thats sort of the time you typically do it in, in Germany, which is where I'm from originally uh and then i I specialized in radiology uh, and did that for about sort of two years uh and then i i I sort of realized look you as a radiologist um you end up sitting mostly in the basement because especially the MRI machines are very very heavy so they can't be
0: ground <laughs> for a level
1: and so and so you get you, you get into the hospital in the morning and it's dark and you get out of the hospital in the evening and it's dark and you kind of think well is that really um, what i mean well i mean this yeah. is slightly that that's slightly um it's actually not it's not the full story so you know the, the there was sort of I, I was already when i was in sort of later in the later stages of my uh of my university so med school i i was ready Tinkering with, well, do I actually want to do this, and or do I want to sort of go and look outside? And so, you know, I just had the urge to sort of see the outside world, I guess, a little bit. And so, I joined a consulting firm called Bain, Bain Company, and and did uh, you know healthcare consulting, you know, management consulting for them for sort of roughly three years, which was super interesting. You know, learned learned tons, um, but wasn't ultimately also quite for me because I just wanted to get something, I wanted to do something which had sort of more longer term impact. As a consultant, you sort of go in a couple of months you know, help the companies um, have real impact, but then you sort of go out and leave and it's sort of fee-for-service type thing. And so, you know, that that didn't really, um, uh, that I didn't find that sort of, you know, too attractive for me personally. Uh, and so I then, uh, I, you know, I did an MBA and then I actually look, looked around with what, what else is out there. And actually I just sort of stumbled across um, venture capital almost by accident because I was talking to a bunch of private equity funds. So this is in the sort of mid noughties it was 2005, 2006, when okay, you know, pre- venture capital uh, pre- was still a... Pre
0: pre financial pre financial crisis,
1: you know everybody, all the bright MBA students were interested in either hedge funds or private equity. That that was sexy at the time. Okay, venture capital was basically the ugly brother or sibling, (laughs) and you know, and so I, but I I actually thought, look, this is really interesting because it's it's combining the sort of, I guess, medical knowledge, the sort of technical knowledge that you built up over you know, over years and years of sort of med school, uh, with I guess commerce and and also sort of people skills and i so i, I felt really attracted to it and uh, so i joined a firm called 3i okay. um, in, in the uk who at the time was actually i think one of the largest uh, venture capital funds in in europe uh, i mean 3i has a really sort of interesting history which you could talk about for you know hours just just, sure.
0: just what, what happened out. what's the history um,
1: well, so, I mean, they were uh, originally, they were um, set up after the Second World War as uh, investment in industry. So three eyes investments okay. in industry. And then they changed the name to three I and it was private. So and they, they basically just financed. They were the financing provider after the Second World War um, to, you know, to a lot of businesses, um, wow. which was needed we had to rebuild after the Second World War. There's a um, There was a Marshall Plan in Germany, which is now... Yeah instead für wiederaufbau which is you know is, is also sort of a state owned bank uh, bank now uh, similar to bpc here or, or british business bank but uh, they, they they were basically that sort of equity financier uh, back then and they were privatized then i think one of the late last privatizations of the Thatcher government uh, in the right. 80s uh, and and then they sort of moved uh, into you know into other asset classes because they were you know listed on the stock market so they added private equity, they added growth capital, they added other products. Uh and so I joined towards the end of this sort of the original um mm-hmm. you know mission of of this you know of, of of 3i, which was venture capital. And then sadly I I I only witnessed two years because they decided to close it down because oh, wow. again, you know, that this was the ugly sibling. The returns right. weren't very good. Venture capital was very difficult in those days because there wasn't a lot of venture capital around. So therefore, there weren't a lot of entrepreneurs around. So therefore, there right. weren't a lot of success stories around. So therefore, right. you don't have the returns, and then you know you've got your sort of your your yeah. your sort of chicken yeah. and egg, problem, yeah, your vicious
0: cycle, or, right? Or like vicious yeah. cycle,
1: yeah. So um, anyway, cut a long story short, sh- short. So I was I was there for two years, and then and then actually I and then the financial crisis hit, and it was just all mayhem. So I actually had a Short stint at, uh, at uh, General Electric at their healthcare okay. division, GE Healthcare. It's doing M and A really for um, primarily for their healthcare IT division. Um, so, unbeknownst to probably many of your listeners, um, GE Healthcare at the time and still today actually has a fairly sizable healthcare IT business, and that's mostly enterprise, um, okay. uh, you know, enterprise hospital hospital enterprise systems. And so, I was just acquiring um, healthcare IT businesses across the across Europe really and that's how I dipped my toe into digital health and then okay. in 2011 I joined Albion with a basically with a mandate to sort of help build their you know digital health or health tech investing and so here we are.
0: And did they? Um, did Albion have much of a digital health footprint at that time or were you sort of brought in to really supercharge it?
1: Not, not at the time we had one investment uh, at the time um, but that was really it and so you know a colleague of mine Andrew Elder um, and, and myself were the the, the two health tech or healthcare people on the team basically sat down and say, said, we need to do something. Um, and so we hashed out a strategy. And, you know, 20, well, 11, 12 years later now, we've sort of we've executed reasonably well on that strategy, I would I would hope.
0: Yeah, good. It seems so. So um, I think we're going to break through, go for a break in a second. And then after that, I want to get back into just a little bit more around How you guys, you and Albion view health technology investments, just more conceptually, some of the things that you think, some of the trends that you have seen over the last 11 or 12 years, which I think really encapsulates the huge kind of growth, or really in the UK anyway, of digital health. That sort of, at least the first arc, if you view like this crash as the kind of the end of that arc, you know, and then like hopefully there'll be another one, we all hope. But, um, you know, I think that that's a really interesting sort of um timeline to to, to that you've, you've worked across and i know there's some great businesses not just locum's nest that you guys have you guys have invested in um but i think more widely like your view around the the health technology ecosystem and i think trying to kind of we always on the show we like to try and make it relevant to the people listening you know because obviously it's quite esoteric right this concept of investing and you know cap tables and all this kind of stuff like why does these things actually matter to patients and i think ultimately they matter to patients because If patients need something, then there has to be somebody providing whatever that thing is, right? Whether it's a bandage or a plaster or an MRI scan or a a lipid test or whatever it is, there has to be a something that doesn't come out of nowhere. And if that something has to be funded. So anyway, we're going to take a break for two minutes. We'll be right back.
2: UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. good.
3: nagging pain. We at Cells know that a small amount of the patient's own bone marrow and blood cells can treat many painful conditions with regenerative orthopaedic therapy. This is an attractive treatment option for painful joints, back pain, sports injuries and many other conditions. It may avoid the need for surgery altogether. cells, Part of a network of 50 Regenex clinics worldwide where over 60,000 patients have been treated and helped. cells. Life is more beautiful with less pain.
2: A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. The station
0: that makes you feel good. Hello, and welcome back to the second part of this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve roost and our guest today, Christoph Rudig, who is the partner of Albion VC, one of the leading VC uh, venture capital firms that invest in early stage health technology companies in in the UK and beyond. So, Christoph, before the break, we were just kind of covering your background and your journey intervention capital so like after you joined um albion bc um how how did you start to try and put together what type of health technology is interesting or or worthwhile looking at because it's really varied right so like you've got everything from drugs therapies medical devices right the way through to sort of you know really soft apps that you know you know and everything in between so like how did you start to try and triage that stuff
1: yeah, um, interesting question. And actually, just reflecting back on when I started, which you know again was eleven years ago, so two thousand and eleven um, here at Albion. Um, and so you know, my colleague Andrew and I we sort of sat down, and uh, he's also an ex consultant. So we did what good, you know, any good consultant does, which is um, sort of come up with a market map and uh, you know yes. sort of, what are the different what are the different sectors. And, and so the, the the funny thing is, or the sort of I guess the the, the easy part. It was that it, the 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 landscape was a lot less busy? It was a lot. It was a, you know, a lot fewer companies uh, and business models around than than there are today. Uh, so in, in a way, actually, that task was a lot easier than than it would be today if you sort of fresh. Right. Uh, and so we we, we broadly, we very broadly, split the landscape, and we still do to this day into we call this now digital pharma okay. and a bit digital care and. Uh, And so, and then we did actually, I mean, not just sort of a, you know, a desktop exercise, but we actually met quite a lot of people and talked to a lot of people. So, and that included, you know, entrepreneurs, ex-entrepreneurs that were, you know, selling or trying to sell to providers and in particular in the UK to the NHS and also to the the industry, which is, you know, pharmaceutical industry, medtech industry. Um, and, And the conclusion from that exercise was that, it's really, and this is 11 years ago, um, so keep that in mind. It, but, but at the time, we concluded, just don't touch anything which tries to sell into the NHS because it's just too yeah. difficult. Um, and so we started um, we, we started really focusing on, on the digital pharma piece. So th- th- those are companies that have developed uh, software platforms that sell into the pharmaceutical industry across right. the value chain, really. And back in the day, the sort of AI drug discovery um, you know, which which used to be called sort of computational drug discovery way back when. Yeah. That, that was an attempt earlier, actually, than that, 15 years ago, which completely failed. That okay. that didn't really exist. And w- but what existed at the time was software solutions to set into the clinical trial so that from, you know, after research, you've got a, a clinical trial, typically, which is involving patients, which Many of the listeners may not now know how that works from COVID, you know, you yeah. know large clinical trials. And so there's, there's software systems to support data capture and data analysis for that. So that that piece. And then also there's a commercial piece in pharma. So helping pharma companies getting better at targeting, I guess, the right patients and targeting the right doctors. Um, and that's how we started out. So we made a couple of investments in that sort of, you know, space. And then, you know, as the system, as the, you know, I guess the landscape, the ecosystem evolved, There were then more and more companies actually um, selling to, I guess, providers, so including the NHS, but also outside, you know, in in Germany, Switzerland, France and and such um, that were starting to show traction. (coughs) And so that's when we and this was sort of roughly 2015, 2016, when we started investing in what we now call digital care. Um, And a lot of these business models, actually, all of these companies have, you know, services element to them, because fundamentally what you're selling into the if you're selling to providers or healthcare systems, you're, you're selling a solution. If you're just selling a piece of kit, you're going to struggle to scale. Uh, So that's the sort of view we took, took. and so we've we've made a couple of investments in in companies that that um, that that focus on the high prevalence chronic conditions and really trying to use technology to make care more enjoyable to the patient, but also more effective and and cost uh, well more efficient and more cost effective.
0: And um, how did you think about like the the regulations? I know that for a lot of other well in COVID because of covid there were a lot of sort of more general venture capitalist firms that didn't specialize in health that then kind of rushed after health a bit you know and i'm not necessarily certain that they understood the regulatory framework or the regulatory pathways or the or 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 anything and i think that there were some people that got a bit burnt doing that so i guess with your background were you kind of fully aware of those regulatory sort of issues and pathways and so forth and you were you were investing in businesses that were in those pathways and on those pathways or were you trying to sort of work with companies that didn't necessarily have those obstacles like for example you know apps that don't just don't quite qualify as a medical device for example aren't regulated and things like that
1: yeah so we I mean most of our businesses just to sort of uh to to preface preface this um most of our businesses don't actually uh, i mean there's regulations but there's not the typical um, you know, marketing approval that uh, is right. required, like you have for a, you know, let's say cl- class three or even class two medical device or yeah. a, uh, a pharmaceutical drug. They are subject to regulations, um, and you know, one for example being GDPR, which is, I mean, any company that deals with individuals' data is is you know is, is subject to that now. So, so there definitely are you know regulations, but most of the sort of health tech business, certainly the ones that we invest in, actually aren't you know subject to the to the same strict rules that you have from right. and you know and pharmaceuticals or bi- biotechnology companies but having said that I mean we you know we are we have invested Albion has invested I actually but 3 I have invested in medical device companies and also in you know pharmaceutical companies and so we we are aware of the of the rules and regulations and I think I think where people that are not experienced in the sector have got burned was a little bit I think uh like everybody else got burned, um, you know, from I guess through the sort of COVID pandemic and the and the boom really, because yeah uh, in fact actually what happened in terms of the regulatory landscape during COVID is that the regulators relaxed the rules significantly. Yeah. It was a lot easier than for products uh, to be um you know marketed I guess or um or or distributed or sold. Um, because the regulators realized that actually, you know, the, the I mean, one care needs to continue to be delivered. And if patients, if you're not allowed to see patients, then, you know, you've got to use technology. And whereas before, you know, there were regulatory barriers that, you know, the regulators said, well, okay, let's make an exception now for a year, for two years. And so actually a lot of companies therefore were then able to go to market and sell and actually, you know, sell quite a lot and grow very, very strongly. And so a lot of venture capital funds looked at this and say, well, this is a fantastic growth profile. And by the way, we're in COVID. I mean, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be a massive market. And so you basically had yeah. a lot of money pouring in, a lot of companies being able to raise capital at really inflated valuations. And as the COVID restric- restrictions have disappeared, that's gone into reverse. And then you overlay on top of that, I think the issues you just have in the general economy with inflation, um and 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 what's happening and so you know a lot of there's been a a very strong correction in some of the health technology companies and i think you know a couple of couple of investors feel certainly feel that they've been
0: they've been burnt yeah yeah there's been quite a bit of that i mean you know yeah there's been a fair amount of, of that stuff in the in the press and so returning just to your comment about your original kind of investment thesis about staying away from anything that's holding to the nhs which i think is an interesting statement in the intervening period between then and now do you feel how good a job because i also think this is something that people aren't necessarily aware of which is like first of all the nhs isn't just one kind of entity and you know there's lots of different entities within it and you know that i think how, how good a job would you say that they've done at trying to sort of adopt new innovations new digital innovations because obviously, I imagine 12 years ago, they weren't doing such a great job. But do you feel like that's shifted at all? And has your view on businesses that are NHS sort of involved slash exposed changed?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, uh, you know, 11, 12 years ago, I, I don't know uh, you know, who of your listeners will remember that. But there was a, a big program, government a government-initiated program called National Programme for IT, NPFIT. Uh, and I think that, I mean that was sort of set up that was over 15 years ago now I think and that wasn't a success at all. Um, so okay. they were they were basically trying to digitize the medical records in the hospitals, which was absolutely right to do. But I think the way this was done was probably suboptimal. Uh, in that it was right. sort of top down and force certain you know uh, certain uh, systems on certain regions, so or all the hospitals in the region had to adopt a sort of certain certain system, and and that, you know, that generally uh, goes down, I mean, in any market, in any... Yeah, it's not going to go down you know, very they, they well.
0: In
1: a, so. Very so, you know, it was a bit of a... And the, the problem with that was that, that, that everybody, all the, all the trusts, the entire NHS sort of purchasing organisations were all focused on that, and so there wasn't any room for SMEs. Um, right. And I think we were, I mean, it had already gone away, the NP-FIT and hospitals at that, that time, when we started, were already free to you know, secure their own um, vendors. Uh, but, you know, everybody now had a system and there was still this sort of tail end of all of that. And so I think the mood was just very, very bad uh, at the time. You know, I think now, and and we, so, you know, at Albion, we, we've invested in a couple of companies which uh, are active and selling not just in the UK, but also outside, you know, in Europe, including Germany, including uh, Switzerland, um, you know, France, other sort of countries, and in the US. So we've got a pretty good sort of perspective of, you know, how the different uh, countries are doing. And, and you know, I know that people complain about the NHS all the time and how terrible they are, technology adoption. And I can tell you they're way ahead of the other European countries.
2: Um, that's, so many... that's,
0: that's that, do you know what, that's a great statement. I love that because, like, yeah. I agree with you. People bash the NHS like you would not believe. Like they, I mean, it's like a you know, the we need new sport. War and innovation, and <laughs> yeah, you know, so they're actually ahead, you feel like, the people like in German, the German system, the French, the Swiss.
1: Yeah, no, they definitely are. They're definitely, I mean, one, I think the UK is just is actually the most digitized economy. I don't know if this is still true, but certainly last time I looked at the numbers, which is now probably not five years ago, but if you just looked at online, you know, shopping or retail, it was the most quote-unquote penetrated market okay so the the proportion of uh of of online purchases uh versus offline purchases was higher and the UK, even than in the us okay so no way tech really tech, wow I mean, yeah this, this is a couple of years so i don't know if that those figures are still right but wow. tech adoption in the i mean the uk is just inherently very very good and very strong at tech adoption okay so and then i think what you know you overlay that with uh a system in the nhs which has real capacity constraints okay i mean the the yeah. the the, the number of beds here per head um is is quite a lot lower than in most european countries I and mean, certainly germany where i'm from i think the ratio is almost 3 to 1 they've got 3 three times as many bed per you know
0: 10,000 right? Population. and is that is that because they have more space like more landmass to actually put hospitals or like is that due no, to I investment think, in hospitals or what is
1: it it's it's the latter it's investment in hospitals but it's also doctors they've just you know they've just invested right. i think more over the years in 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 hospitals than in doctors and um i mean i think that looking... due, is,
0: and is that due to the german kind of it's partially private sort of it's that insurer based model right is that because there's more financial investment from that or it just happened to that it's hard to pin down why it just is that way it's a good
1: question. Actually, I've never sort of really thought about what, why specifically. I, you know, I th- I'd say just shooting from the hip a little bit. The, so there's there's two. There is a, there are private hospitals in Germany, and you know, yes, there's more of a sort of a private profit motive, and so therefore you could say, well, they're going to invest more. But if you look at some right. of the utilities here, actually, is that really true? Uh, so yeah, I think right. I a lot yeah. of the a lot of the uh, smaller hospitals are financed actually not through a sort of central budget but a local budget that's that's okay. big, so that you know they are you know it's sort of the equivalent of the local authorities that fund the hospitals uh and i think the local authorities in germany are generally still you know um relatively well financed. it's all getting worse everywhere by the way sure but you know the, the germany also has a better they've got a current account surplus they've run a current account surplus for the last 10 years because right. they export a lot that probably is not going yeah. to change isn't china so i mean i think there are lots of reasons why but fundamentally the the NHS, you know, has, you know, it's capacity. So they actually had to look at solutions as technology as a, as a way out of those. Yeah. I
0: mean, we're, we're a POCDOC, doc. We're a huge beneficiary of that. I mean, and we're just one teeny tiny example, locum's nest, obviously. Another one, exactly. You know, it's like that, you know, just cardiovascular disease is the single biggest killer in the UK. People kind of forgot that a little bit during COVID. And now obviously it's right back to the top of the agenda, but pathology labs are hugely backlogged. Um, The gating factor for being put into a cardiovascular treatment pathway, whether it's to receive a statin or any other kind of treatment is a 5 marker lipid panel. And so the ability to do that via smartphone with everything powered by the cloud that you can d- digitally deliver the results, the health assessment, and then digitally deliver statins, a statin prescription, which is what yes. we're working on, like yeah. anywhere in the UK, at home, or any on the high street or anything like that. That came specifically, I mean, we're, we're, we're working across the private space as well, but from an NHS perspective, um, that came out of when we were on the digital health accelerator with the NHS, and also came like directly from the fact that they cannot test for lipids at the level that they want to. Because yeah. you can't that you physically cannot do it because the system's so constrained.
1: Yeah. And that's fascinating because I think that that, that what, what you just said is sort of part of our thesis of where healthcare is going to evolve or have to evolve into. And and why shouldn't it, right? I mean that's that's how you now. Yeah, it's, like it's, right? there's that's... no
0: there's no why would it why would it not? I mean if it's the good the great thing about healthcare, which which I love explaining to people, is that it it it's so organized and regulated, right? that you, you you unless you're willing to completely go rogue right just let's say which obviously people do in any industry you know like wirecard or whatever it is i mean people can go off the hook right um it, you're you're dealing with generally a group of people that are absolutely dedicated to delivering a quality safe product or service mm. from the top of the system right the way down to the bottom like you're not you're not dealing with people that are necessarily motivated by money or things like that there's always a central mission generally with entrepreneurs or entrepreneurial entrepreneurial people in this space that sort of transcends what the commercial thing is you know it's like for us it's about access to testing whether it's cardiovascular disease or hba1c or the work that we're doing the gates foundation on polio like that's our bag but everyone else has their own thing like for example ahmed at at locum's nest i remember talking to him and we can talk about that for a little bit So i love that company and i love what they've done i mean the thing that blew me away when he came on the show for the second time was this idea that you've got nhs trust oxfordshire nhs trust buckinghamshire right like next to each other neighbors yes but and and you've got people that will work in the oxfordshire trust but live in buckinghamshire and vice versa yes but they can't actually switch between the two trusts Mm.
2: they can't take shifts at the two trusts
0: i thought he was winding me up when he said that i was like that can't be true that just can't be true in this day and age right yeah
2: No,
1: but that's the thing. I mean, there there is because, you know, to your point, because there's so much regulation. Right. And and there's also there's just ways that people are used to working, uh, which creates so much inefficiency and where technology is just the answer. Right. And uh, Yeah. yeah. You know, but even then, it still takes a lot of time. I mean, Ahmed, you know, he's, he's I mean, you know, it, you're absolutely right. It's a fantastic company. Of course, I'd say that is part of our portfolio. But <laughs> it's a Fantastic job, really trying to break that. And I think, you know, now they, you know, they are they're quite successful in doing so, and um, and they're really helping to to address an efficiency uh, problem which exists because you've got a highly regulated industry, and you know, and, and people working their ways and that sort of thing. So, so I think you're absolutely right. I think the you know technology really is the answer, and that's where. You know where where the system has to develop, but going back to the you know why why the NHS is more advanced in other countries. I mean, certainly in Europe, is is because of because of that you know because of that those supply constraints. Because if you've got super if you've got overcapacity, none of this sort of surfaces really. Um but, but if if you have undercapacity, it surfaces very, very quickly. Then all of a sudden you've got your you know your cues in the in the uh, you know in the A and E just 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 lining up and and that is just something nobody really wants, right? Politicians it's dreadful for patients and their health and and so yeah. but that again, that's why I think the, the, the NHS is you know is is much quicker at adopting technology. And by doing so, you're actually catapulting yourself into the future. Because you yeah. know, hopefully, at one point we'll be in a situation where actually capacity will match demand, or supply will match demand. Well, I, I, yeah. uh, but then I mean, we'll I, have actually I, a you know a system and solutions which are really enjoyable, where you don't have to go to the doctors if you don't want to. So you just basically get send your test kits like you yeah, do. You right? Do it and and it's all digitally integrated. Know, it's all digital.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. It's and much- I, I mean, and I, you know, I think that there's obviously issues around health inequality that technology can address. Sometimes it creates health inequality, but that's a separate kind of downstream impact. You know, like if someone doesn't have a smartphone, what do they do? But I think there are ways to kind of adjust for that. And it shouldn't be that just we, we shouldn't miss progress for the sake of perfection. Right. And I think that that's one thing that's really, really important. Um, but no, I, I think that there's been a lot of instances. There's a couple of new story, a couple of stories I want to kind of jump into after we stop for our next commercial break. The first is this um, NHS GP um, digital. I don't know if you saw the NHS digital thing where they're naming and shaming GP surgeries around waitlist times not sure you saw this story I can no, go let into let it. see that absolutely well we can get into it I don't want to preempt it and then the other one this is a government initiative this is not you know uh, and then the other one is the r d tax credits but i I do think that that um to kind of round up this this sort of part of it I completely agree that the NHS the you know necessity is the mother of invention and actually what I've never heard from anyone in all my time working with the NHS is that um there's no problem right yeah. no 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 no. one stood there being yeah. like it's all good it's yeah. fine yeah. we don't need a solution like no one's saying that it's yeah. more around you've got lots of people that are doing a very very difficult job you know it's overstretched system over you know huge demand and they're just trying to figure out the best solutions that work for the most amount of people in a highly complex system with all kinds of downstream implications if you change something here and like what happens there it's like it's 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 just not like anything else that you've worked with unless you've worked with it and worked worked with those individuals. But like, it's I don't think anyone's saying it's all fine. You know what I mean? Like totally they've agree, recognized agree. there's issues.
1: Yeah, totally
0: agree. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, um, Christoph, we're going to be right back after the final break, right back with Christoph Rudig, who is partner at um, Albion VC, one of the leading VC companies in the UK that invest in early stage businesses, including health tech. We'll be right back to the final part of this week's health tech hour.
2: A station that makes you feel good.
3: Nagging pain. We at AlgaCells cells know that a small amount of the patient's own bone marrow and blood cells can treat many painful conditions with regenerative orthopaedic therapy. This is an attractive treatment option for painful joints, back pain, sports injuries and many other conditions. It may avoid the need for surgery altogether. Alga cells Part of a network of 50 X clinics worldwide where over 60,000 patients have been treated and helped. Alga cells Life is more beautiful with less pain.
2: A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, Juice Bar and Holistic Dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the last part of this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest this week, Christoph Rudig, partner at Albion VC. So, Christoph, let's pick up on a couple of these news stories, and then I want to kind of finish up with your experience, because we get a lot of entrepreneurs listening to the show. And so I just want to finish up with kind of like everyone. I mean, look, everyone in health technology at the moment. I was at MedTech World last week there's some bruised people out there okay there's there's some people are a little bit bruised a little bit battered a little bit sensitive so i want to try and kind of finish up on some you know let's get people's tires pumped up and you can give people some positivity about what it means to be a good entrepreneur why it matters why the world needs us all that type of stuff right. um so but let's talk about first of all the world of r&d tax credits so for the people that don't know what an r&d tax credit is, okay, for the very few of you listening that don't know what an R&D tax credit is, at am Basically, the government set up a program. I don't know how long ago, but it's been around for a really long time. I think ten years, fifteen years, something, yeah, like, 10, that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, ten years. Which was basically that if you are an R R&D research and development R&D innovative company, and there's some qualifying information or quali- there's you have to qualify for it. Like you can't just set yourself up and say that you're doing it um the, the the government will give you a tax credit in return a rebate in effect um if you're loss making or a credit against your um uh, your corporation tax if you're making a profit based around the research and development costs that you incur so the government basically said we recognize that it costs a lot of money to uh, and there's a really long runway around r&d we want to encourage and grow uh, scientific uh, high technology businesses and encourage them to be here engineering businesses r and businesses science businesses we want them to be based in the uk we want to help them um, and we want to help them continue to invest in r&d so once you've got one product we don't want them to stop we want them to continue to invest in new products and keep coming out right so i guess that, that was the background right and so what they right. said was you can apply for tax credits up to like i think it's 130 percent of of what you've spent um back so it was a really generous allowance and like for us at Pockdoc, I remember when we got our first one, it was like at the time a hugely meaningful check. You mm-hmm. know, it like it was like three or four months runway, the equivalent yeah. of. I mean, like 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 for, for mind-blowingly life-changing for an early-stage business to be able to have that back. And I remember in in our first angel meetings, people were like they were looking at our financial projections and they were like, "You haven't put your R&D tax credits in there." They're like, no, no, you need to get it in because that's going to make a material impact to your runway at this yeah, stage because yeah. you're at an angel stage. So it's that it, there isn't a single entrepreneur who's founded um, a health tech business that doesn't know what an R&D tax credit is. So anyway, the news story that I want to get your view on is basically that Rishi Sunak is cutting them in half. He's reducing them in half mm. um, as of next year. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, look, uh, I, I, you know, you can. I think if you take sort of the government's position. Mm. Just uh, you know, looking, I guess, at the finances, the public finances. You know, I mean, they're, and I think, I think Rishi Sunak said this right. They're they're tough, and, and Jeremy Hunt said there's that they're really tough decisions to be made, and you know, and, and somewhere, you know, the they, they've got to you know take out the knife and sort of and make those cuts, right? Yeah. And you know, it is uh, the thing that I sort of, I I didn't sort of fully understand really, although I, I'm sure they have their reasons. But is that they were, you know, in 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 the same statement, uh, budget statement, they were saying that they want to support, you know, I guess an innovation economy, an R and D economy, yeah. um, and you know, and then at the same time they're cutting the R and D tax credits, right? And so it's sort of, you know, with one hand it, you know, the government giveth, with the other other hand it taketh. Uh, it felt a little bit like that. But look, you know, I, you know, I really don't want to criticize the government for, you know, for what they're doing. I I I I'm sure they have the best intentions and. Again, there there is, it's a very, very difficult situation this country finds itself in at the moment. And not just really our country. Don't... I mean,
0: it's consistent across, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> of course, I mean, it's not it just
1: us, right? Of, I mean... of course. And I, you know, I, I really do not want to be the Chancellor of the Exchequer at this particular no, point. No, that's true. All, all the problems. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not a politician anyway, so, you know, I, I would go there. But, you know, even if I was, I just, I think this is a very, they're in a very, very difficult position. I think they're trying to balance the books. So they've got, you know, they've got a lot of sort of demands from, from everywhere. I think what they may have done. You know, and again, I, you know, actually, I don't know the detail well enough, but I mean, they, what you may consider doing in a situation like that is to say, okay, fine, for the ones that actually needed less, so the later stage, you know, more yeah. profitable companies, you know, cut it entirely for them. And then for the earlier stage companies, leave that in place as much as you can, that may have been an approach.
0: Or, or, or like the inverse, right? Because they might say, well, if you're early, if you're early stage, then giving you that back again, that might like you, you might get out of business. However, if you're a going concern, one of these big companies that's already running, maybe actually we'll want to try and incentivize you to hire more people and to grow more or something like that. But you make it kind okay. of sliding. I totally agree. I think just, you know, I, I read the same statement and I was similarly confused because it was sort of, it wasn't like, you're not just cutting it, but you're also saying that you want to be this kind of innovation economy and Um, you know sort of high technology growth company or country and sort of support science and life sciences and all that kind of stuff so i just thought it was a little bit sort of contradictory but i guess we'll have to see how it kind of comes out i will i mean obviously everyone understands the economic situation that we're in as country um yeah but you know i think it's hard right because you also don't want companies that only exist because they get r&d tax credits Tracing. Yeah, which I mean,
1: like, yeah, I, I I have I haven't seen in my career to be honest. No, I, you know, I don't it's, think it's easy. No, yeah, I think way. I mean I think that as you said before, I think this was this is actually a very uh, you know very very helpful um, means of financing. Or I mean, effectively, what happens is you, you know you're not really sort of paying much paye um, yeah. for you know for for these employees and and sort of you know other sort of social payments so um and, and that that is extremely helpful as you say i mean you know, almost all of our companies actually claim ID tax credit uh and it's it's a meaningful sum it really is a meaningful sum. so that, this is i mean no doubt this is hurting uh and there's been quite a sort of an outcry across the industry oh my yeah. god what does that mean and yeah so, I think know, there's it, is, a,
0: it is definitely painful there's a joint letter i think going in at some point from various people in the industry the great and the good i think including some venture capital companies have signed on to it about you guys need to have a little rethink. Um, so I don't know. I mean, but they've got to find it from somewhere. That's the other thing, right? Yeah. Which is what you said. So yeah. Yeah. it's, it's hard. It's a very hard solution to crack. So the other thing I want to touch on, which it sounds like you hadn't, you hadn't heard about, but the government this week, well, so the government implemented a policy whereby it would it's, um, uh, it's it sort of mandated NHS digital to publish the waiting list statistics for gp surgeries across the uk so as in effectively a league table of how long you are waiting at any given gp surgery and the goal that they said was to allow informed choice for patients to go to gp surgeries that have better in person you know percentage of appointments done in this period and so on and so forth so the data came out this week and um I just didn't, I mean, it doesn't sound like you, you sort of knew about it. I think my view on the whole thing, just to get the kind of discussion going a little bit, was sort of like, I don't know if, if there's as much choice, consumer choice, if you like, if you treat a patient like a consumer in your GP surgery, mm. as there is in a, well, for example, I don't like the service I get from my mobile phone provider, so I'm going to switch to a better deal. Like, I don't necessarily know if that thesis holds as true, but I don't know if you have a thought on that particular thing.
1: Well, I mean, I don't think. I, yeah, I think you're right. I don't think uh, there is actually a lot of choice because, I mean, typically, I mean, certainly in some sort of rural areas, I mean, there's a GP you know surgery that that y- you can sort of access, and you know, you're on that list, and 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 that that's it, and there's there's little choice. Um, I mean, I can see again, I can see the sort of um, the uh, the sort of thinking behind this 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 policy, uh, because if you make it sort of public, that may Um, cause some of the GP surgeries to, you know, maybe try to sort of work harder to remove, to to bring those uh, wait lists down. So I think in practice, that's sort of assuming that the GPs, you know, and the staff at these, at these surgeries <laughs> will work spec- hard. Yeah, right. Yeah, they and they'll work hard and they're sort of, you know, they sort of twiddle their thumbs in, which is not at all the case. I mean, you yeah. know, the thing if we talked about the 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 you know the undercapacity in the system here. I mean that, that that is what it is. It is, you know, you don't have enough doctors in this country, you don't have enough nurses in this country. And so no. you know, and and the you know, the 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 staff in the NHS, the frontline staff, the doctors and the nurses, they're working incredibly Incredibly hard. Yeah, you know. And actually, the, the concern I have whenever I speak to a, a doctor and I get quite a few calls these days now, but sort of doctors thinking about you know changing industry, you know, going to venture yeah. capital, for example. And my, my first advice to them is, please, can you please stay in the healthcare yeah. system? Because we need you because yeah. you know, you've got you in the sort of death spiral at the moment because there's so much workload and you know, it's, it's really so tough at the moment. I've got many friends who are doctors and you know, they're not, they're not very happy because there's so much pressure on them because there isn't enough of them. And so they're, yeah. and they're weightless. And then they get, you know, and you add the sort
0: of naming and shaming on top of it.
1: Yeah. What is it going to do? I mean, it's just going to well, drive I, people out of the system. I that that's,
0: that's, that was my reaction. It was sort of like, it, it, if you f- if you feel like ne- ne- if if you feel like publicizing lists ranked lists of anything in any in any vertical mm. that generally is associated with sort of trying to say well these people are better than these people yes sort yes. of thing there's that's that's the point right so yeah. i don't necessarily know if that's helpful at this point in time yeah. you know like uh, 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 and and I, you know, I, I, I don't like to, your, to the point around the earlier that this was driven by this sort of statement that, the, you know, I think there was like the media hype around. No one can see a doctor. Quote. right No one can. No one can physically see a doctor, yeah. which isn't quite the same way as being treated or, you know, being advised on anything or whatever, because actually you can do those digitally by the phone, all those different types of things. so. I'm not sure necessarily setting an arbitrary target that I think if they put arbitrary target of like 75 or 80 percent of appointments have to be face to face. Like I've just not. I what's that based on? I just don't yeah. what, know what what's that like. Is yeah. that a health yeah. outcome basis or is what what's that being driven by? I don't know. It's, yeah, it's I
1: mean, I, look, I, th- I think it's all it's all done with the best intentions, right? I mean, they they are probably you know they look. I imagine they look at average statistics and say, okay, you know, the the good practices. You know they have 75% or 80% of the appointments are sort of are you know face to face, so that's that's what everybody needs to do. But to your point, I mean that really depends on the patient, depends on the situation. Is it somebody who is you know who can use a mobile phone? If they're not, then they need to be seen, yeah. of course. And then I think the I mean the overall policy seems to be driven. I've done a bit of um, uh, searching in the web uh, in in the commercial break. Seems to be driven <laughs> by the, by the you know by the fact that uh, the the A&E wait lists are so long. So people who can't see their GP they end up in the A&E, and that there's of course right. a massive problem in the A&E. You have seriously sick patients who need to be seen and so so again i think it's it's all done with the best intentions but it's probably there, there will be you know collateral damage you know there will be you know unintended consequences effects that yeah know, this, this, such a policy could uh could could entail so
0: i'm a little bit yeah. worried I, I i'd agree with you I, I yeah i i'm with you i like i think that the, everyone in the system seems to be working flat out really and, and, yeah. and i just fear that like it's it's not sustainable and i don't know how like enjoyable it is if you're in that and and you know like if you're a sort of junior doctor or coming out of junior doctoring and i mean that's a heck of a long stretch ahead of you man like yeah. you know looking down the barrel of that i mean wolf
1: yeah it's tough i completely agree yeah
0: it's tough. Um, so you know we should, okay. should
1: thank them we should tag all the you know yeah, all that stuff i mean they're doing such a
0: fantastic job so you know kudos, kudos to all of them yeah, thank you very much to all of those guys. So let's, in the last few minutes of the show, let's just touch on a couple of things. So, like, what is it that gets you excited about working with entrepreneurs?
1: So, I think the 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 single most exciting thing, you know, is is the passion and the drive. You know, if I mean, there's just there's just nothing sitting, not, nothing like sitting in the room with you know an entrepreneur who's got the sort of passion and the fire and wants to improve you know, ultimately, to the earlier point, you know, patients lives and patient outcomes, because that is what health tech or healthcare generally is about. Uh, And, 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 you know, just sitting in the room with somebody who's got a, you know, fantastic idea, fantastic product that is sort of early, where you've got early proof points that it's working, and it's being adopted, and it is driving better outcomes, patients are doing better, you know, you're saving costs. um, And, you know, and everybody's sort of, it's a win-win situation. There's nothing quite like that. I mean, you know, and, and maybe this is also a personal thing for me because, you know, as a former medic, you know, I mean, patients are sort of front and center, and uh, and but but also, of course, the sort of happiness of the staff, as we just discussed, right? And if you can improve all these things with technology, uh, it's just a fantastic thing, and you know, and it's but it's it's that sort of drive and that fire that these entrepreneurs have, which is just something that's it's almost infectious, and and I really enjoy <laughs> that. I really enjoy that.
0: Good, and um. What would your advice be to anyone who's sort of currently out there at the moment, you know, struggling a little bit or maybe kind of losing their little bit of motivation? What would you say to them?
1: Yeah, just hang in there. (laughs) So so I've, you know, I've now, but I mean, it's a set of venture capital almost 15 years, um, and you know, I've seen, you know, I've seen cycles before. uh, You know, I mean, the last one was, I guess, the sort of the financial crisis and the COVID. COVID was a very unusual one, but um, you know, the financial crisis is probably the more comparable. Um sort of financial economic crisis, and it always comes back. it always comes back it's just the way the economies behave. There are always cycles, and some are caused by external shocks like this one, some are yeah, sort yeah. of homemade <laughs> right um but you know ultimately you know things will adjust, and there's enough there's a lot of firepower still, a lot of capital around there that capital a lot of that is just sitting and waiting at the moment, but it will you know, this is going back to the earlier discussion we had, you know, they the one thing that most of the fund managers won't do is is return the capital to their, to their institutional investors. Yeah, right. <laughs> They're just waiting yeah. for the sort of right time for things to improve and they will improve. So I think just hang in there, make sure that you focus on your bottom line, that you buy yourself enough runway. You're not dependent on external investor. If you can, I recognize a lot of companies aren't in that fortunate position, but if you can try to preserve cash as much as you can, yeah. um, you know, go for the R&D tax credits, so it's a bit smaller now go for you know try to be creative for financing solutions and that sort of thing and then just try to sort of hang in there and, uh, and focus on your bottom line
0: Cool Christoph Rudig thank you very much for coming on the show Christoph Rudig partner at Albion our guest on this week's Health Tech Hour and thank you very much to everyone for listening we'll be back again next week thank you Thank you You see tonight it could go either way Hearts balanced on a razor blade We are designed to love and break, then to rinse and repeat it all again.